0: Let us pray. Before we pray, I'm sorry. If if there are any children who are uh, going to children's worship, you're dismissed at this time. Let us pray. Holy Father, you are worthy of every thought and deed this morning. And as we come to your word We pray that You would open our eyes to see the truth of Your Word and our minds to comprehend it and our hearts to love it. We ask, God, that for the the joy of our own souls, You would nourish and nurture uh, our our bodies, nurture our souls so that we might uh, walk with You, that we might experience the joy that You give us daily because of the salvation that we have in your son christ and so heavenly father as we come to this time it is our hope and our uh, it would be our pleasure that you would look into our lives and that you would uh, would transform us and shape us and mold us teach us father how to be servants that are humble teach us lord how to live a life that is worthy of the gospel and worthy of even the model that Christ gives us in the text this morning. May you be exalted today, Lord, in and through our lives through this church. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The title of the message this morning is Serving Christ, Serving God's People. And the text is John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. And if you're following in the Chairback Bible, you'll find that on page uh, 900. <clears throat> As we uh, approach this text, we're kind of beginning a new, uh, a new division in the gospel of John. Chapter 13 kind of begins looking now at the passion of, of Christ. It's the, the portion that points us toward the cross. And so as we, uh, as we begin, let us first start by reading. If you found your place in verse, 13, uh, verse 1 of chapter 13, say word. Follow along as I read. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knowing that his hour had come and that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper... The devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands, that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside the garments, his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a the towel with which he was girded. And so he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. As I approached this text and was just meditating on it and studying this week, even personally benefiting from The truth of the text. The last verse, verse 17, really captivated my thought. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. What's Jesus saying? He's saying that if we know these things that he's just talked about, the serving and the humility, then you're blessed. In other words, you will find favor from God. You will be highly favored by God if you know these things and if you do them. So it goes beyond mere comprehension to the way that we live, right? It's living out these things. I was reminded of one particular day I was going to the hospital in Alexandria to visit someone who was there sick. And as I'm walking into the hospital, uh, I made eye contact with one of the nurses that worked there, and I said, how are you doing today? And she said, divinely blessed and highly favored. And I said, yes, ma'am, and just walked in. The more I began to think about that, uh, here's a person walking in the Spirit. (laughs) Here's a person that's not afraid to say that they are highly favored by God, that they've been blessed by God, and they're not afraid to show that. I think that's really the idea that we see in this text. Those who know these things and do them, they are highly favored. They are blessed by God. And so this morning, as we look first at verses 1 through 11, I believe that we see the means of salvation for all believers Uh, The means of salvation for all believers involves the cross. And so I I don't want to mislead us in any way. That's where we're heading. In this text, Jesus shows us and points us to, John is pointing us to, see the cross. But verse 1 notes the setting in chapter 13. The setting is just before the feast of Passover. And that references what Jesus is about to do in washing the disciples' feet. Just, be, just before the Passover meal, he is going to wash the disciples' feet. So just before Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, John's alerting us to the timetable that's at hand. His hour, that inevitable hour that we've been looking at all throughout the Gospel of John through our study. We've seen it in chapter 2 and chapter 7 and chapter 8 and chapter 12 and other places in between when he references his time And so that inevitable hour has come. And so the theme of Jesus' hour has been covered and the theme of His hour points us to see His glorification on the cross. He is heading to the cross. But you know what's interesting here is that John's gospel is the only gospel account that tells us of this instance where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. I think there's a reason And the reason is connected with looking at the big picture of the Gospel of John. First, in chapters 1 through 12, we have what was called the book of signs that we just completed. And if you'll read through, just quickly glance through or even read through the Gospel of John, chapters 1 through 12, what you'll find is a pattern. And the pattern that we find is there's always, well, Jesus, John presents a sign that Jesus does. And then he follows that sign with a discourse to teach on the point and the purpose of that sign. For example, Jesus healed the blind man. And then after the healing of the blind man, what does he say? He gives a discourse and says, I am the light of the world. Jesus multiplied bread to feed 5,000. And after the multiplying bread to feed 5,000, we have the bread of life discourse where Jesus says, I am the the bread of life. And so on and so forth. So, so there's, a, uh, there's a pattern that John uses in writing in, the gospel, in his gospel in the first 12 chapters. But then we see in chapter 13, in this last half of John's gospel, he reverses this order. And in reversing the order, he gives us discourses first. And these discourses are all leading up to the final sign. And the final sign they're leading up to is Christ on the cross, that he will die and then be resurrected from the grave and ascend to the Father. Here is the final sign. And so everything that we read in in chapters 13 through 20 here are pointing us, and, and even to the end of the gospel, are pointing us to see Jesus as Messiah, the one whom receives the glory of the Father and glorifies the Father. And it points us to see that Christ's glorious work ultimately is fulfilled on the cross. So Jesus, knowing his hour has come, he points his disciples to the cross through humble, lowly service. How do we know that? Well, look in verse 7. Jesus answered and said to him, right after Peter saying, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. In reality, Jesus is teaching His disciples about the means of their salvation. That is, the cleansing that He is about to about to issue to them. is It's a cleansing not only of washing their feet, but it, it points them to see that ultimately, Jesus is the one who will wash away their sins, purifying their souls that they may have eternal life. This is the hope of the gospel. And so John intends for us to see a cross connection even here and that's what Jesus is pointing his disciples to and as we as we see the means of salvation for all believers through the cross i want to want us to make three observations about about Jesus about what he's doing and the first one is we see an act of love there is an act of love in verses 1 2 and 5 if you look at the last phrase in verse 1 he says having loved his own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. Jesus is performing a living parable that points us to see the cross as the ultimate act of lowly service. It was through the cross that Jesus loved His own to death. He loved His own even in this way that He would wash the feet of His disciples. The question that was prompted in my mind as I, as I walked through the text is, How far then does the love of God reach? How far does it reach? The answer simply is that the love of God knows no boundaries. The love of Christ is so great that in the hours just before his death, when death is right there in his face, what does he do? He begins thinking about and serving others. He serves his disciples. In fact, verse 2 shows us, Just how great the depth of this love was that he would even wash the disciples, uh, wash the feet of Judas, the betrayer. One of his disciples, knowing, knowing all things, verse three, knowing that in a few moments, Judas, this betrayer, would be the one who would turn him over and be a traitor against him. The love of Christ is magnified in this passage It's magnified in this passage through the lowly service of of foot washing. It's a thing that none of the disciples wanted to do to one another. But when Jesus began washing their feet, Peter begins thinking, I should be the one washing his feet. Christ's living parable then foreshadows his lowly service in death. In John chapter 15, just a couple of chapters advanced from here, Jesus will tell his disciples, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You see, just as the love of Christ is magnified through his death, we see the love of Christ magnified here in the lowly service of washing the feet of his disciples, pointing us to his death. We also see in this act of love, a selflessness. One who would put himself, put others rather, ahead and in front of and think of others instead of think of himself. He would teach his disciples the greatest act of love in, in serving them by taking the lowliest form of service they could imagine. But not only do we see the love of Christ magnified through his death, we, we see the humility of Christ magnified through his sovereignty. We see the humility of Christ magnified through his sovereignty. So secondly, we see an act of humility in verses 3 and 4. And the act of humility is just that, that he would gird himself. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God, was going back to God. Get the picture. The one who knows all things, who created all things, who sustains all things. He performs the lowliest act of service known in the Jewish culture. Washing the feet of someone wasn't even, uh, it, it wasn't even, the, the Jewish slave wasn't even allowed to do that. It was reserved for the Gentile slaves. Jesus was so great, yet he stooped so low. The Father had put all things into his hands, yet Verse 4 says, he laid aside his garments, girded himself with a towel. And then verse 5, he began to fill the basin. His taking the dress even of a lowly slave points us to to see the humility in Christ's life. It's a reminder for us to even look back to the beginning of the Gospel of John where we see the incarnation of Christ, where he robes himself in in, in our flesh, in our humanity. The supreme sovereign became the suffering servant. Christ wasn't blindsided by the cross. He, he approached it with his eyes wide open. And at the moment of his greatest weakness, he rendered the greatest service. Christ purchased salvation. And he made the way possible for man to experience restoration and salvation in Christ and and restoration in our relationship with God. You see, through Jesus' act of humility, we learn ourselves that we mustn't think that we're too lofty for a specific role of service, for a specific task, Instead, we should seek out ways to serve others so they will see the very hands and feet, or the very hands of Christ washing their feet. It's through humility of service like this that Jesus is calling His disciples to. My goodness, if the Lord and Master, if the Teacher, if the Lord of all creation would come down, take upon the form of man, and wash the feet of His creation, how much more should we? That's the point that Jesus is wanting to drive home for his disciples. But you know, if we speak truthfully this morning, we might confess the way of humility is a difficult road, isn't it? It's a tough road to walk in humility. Mother Teresa had a few words to share about humility. She said, these are the few ways that we can practice humility. To speak as little as possible of one's self. To mind one's own business. Not to want to manage other people's affairs. To avoid curiosity. To accept contradictions and corrections cheerfully. To pass over the mistakes of others. To accept insults and injuries. To accept being slighted, forgotten, and disliked. To be kind and gentle even under provocation. Never to stand on one's dignity. And to choose always the hardest. Some difficult statements, but great advice from Mother Teresa. Christ himself models humility for us in this text. Lucius Lewis, who said, true humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. I think it's a great point. Because when we think of ourselves less, it means we're thinking of others more. And Christ has called us in this fellowship of believers to be about serving one another. I think what we need to see here is that through humility and lowly service, we display the glory of God and we further Christ's mission as His church. important for us to grasp as we interact within the body of Christ Christ showed us humility and lowly service and as we model and follow what Christ has done to his disciples and we do that in the midst of one another here's what's happening we're displaying the glory of God and we're serving one another, which means we are, we are taking the mission that Christ has left for his church and we are employing and, and we are engaging in that mission to serve one another. Does humility and lowly service characterize your discipleship? Does it characterize the way that we walk with God? Is it, does it characterize our disposition? I wonder this morning, have you discovered the joy of humble, lowly service? Have you discovered what it means to serve others in a humble way, to be uh, exalting of others, even at your own expense, perhaps? So we see an act of love and an act of humility, but thirdly, I want us to see a demonstration of cleansing in verses 5 through 11. Verses five through eleven really provide us kind of three boundaries from from Jesus' living parable, three boundaries for our faith and the the first one is this: we can't serve Christ unless he has first served us. We see this in verses five through eight in verse five Jesus what's he do? He begins washing the disciples' feet, and Peter. Being the vocal one, he, he balks at the horror of Jesus stooping this low. If anything, Peter realizes that the situation ought to be reversed. He ought to be the one washing Jesus' feet. And so Peter emphatically in verse 8 tells Jesus, Never, never will you wash my feet. These weren't just light words. And so Jesus replies, if I don't wash you you have no part with me he's directing that right back at Peter it's a it's a it's a second singular pronoun if you Peter if I don't wash you you have no part with me it's very personal here he's speaking right to Peter in the midst of the disciples this speaks to us today many today many in our culture and specifically in the culture of the American church who who think their salvation is dependent upon the good things they have done maybe even identified with a group of people but but we we must understand this that first before we could ever serve Christ we must first be served by him that means we must first have our sins cleansed and our soul cleansed by the saving work of Christ on the cross that has to happen first Before anybody can serve Christ, they they must be served by Him. And that's what Jesus is telling Peter here. Many people today think their goodness and humanitarian efforts will grant them entrance into God's eternal kingdom. But outside of Christ, there is no hope at all. We need Christ's cleansing to wash away our sin, to purify our soul, The second boundary I think that we we see in verses 9 and 10, even into verse 11, is Christ's work of salvation on the cross is sufficient to secure my soul eternally. This is a second boundary that we need to be gripped with and and wrestle with. We understand the work of Christ on the cross at the point it brings salvation into our lives and His salvation is sufficient to secure our souls for eternity. Peter replies in verse 9 with enthusiasm as he does. He's either hot or cold. right? He's on one extreme or the other. And he goes from, from the extreme of saying, Never shall you wash my feet, to... Okay, Lord, not just my feet, but my my hands and my head, everything. wash wash all of me. And in verse ten, Jesus said to him, "He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. Of course, verse eleven tells us he was speaking about Judas when he says, "Not all of you. And so let me elaborate on the interchange that's happening here. In a day of dirt roads and open-toed, open-shoe sandals, open sandals that you know, have no covering, there's no way, there are no socks, they don't have socks, right? And so in a day of dirt roads, as they would travel from one place to another, from one destination to another, a person's feet would get filthy, they would get dirty. And as they traveled to their destination, they would... They would have to, upon arriving, wash their feet or have their feet washed in order to be clean. And so, what Jesus is saying here is after a bath, they didn't need to bathe again, they only needed their feet cleaned. Foot washing was a symbol of cleansing from sin. That's what Jesus is saying here. The, the foot washing is symbolic of Him cleansing the disciples from sin. They didn't need to return to the beginning and, and bathe all over again, they simply needed to wash the dirt off of their feet. And the point is once clean, once clean, we as Christ's disciples remain clean. Once we've been clean through the cross of Christ and the work of salvation through Christ, we are clean. We are we are clean as Christ's disciples. But it draws our attention to a great need that we have as disciples. And the need is that we are continually dependent upon Christ and the cross and what he accomplished on the cross for our cleansing. Realizing that our sin has been paid for and we've we've been cleansed, though we walk about in this world, we must seek to remain unstained by the sin which so easily entangles us. So the challenge here for the disciples is that they would allow Christ to wash their feet. And it's a call for us that we would continue to be dependent upon Christ in our daily life, our daily walk. The third boundary for faith that I think is seen in this text, and this one may be a little bit more implicit is this confidence in the sufficiency of the cross must not lead to complacency. Confidence in Christ's work on the cross and saving us must not lead us to a place of complacency in our walk with Christ. Complacency is the enemy of the disciple of Christ. It's the greatest enemy to God's people. While we've been cleansed from sin, we we must continue to run the race that's marked out before us. The Christian is, is, is not called to be a bystander. The Christian life is not about being a bystander to the race, but it's about being an active participant. The means of salvation for all believers. Jesus is is teaching this. The means of salvation for all believers. As seen through the foot washing. Is cleansing from sin through his cross. The place where he's headed. The hour that has come. That's why in verse 7 he tells them. What I do to you. You do not realize now. But you will understand here after. He knew the one who was betraying him. Judas wasn't clean. But his disciples were. And the call for us is that we would continually return to the cross of Christ for the cleansing and be reminded of and confess the need for the cleansing that Christ alone can give. The second point I want us to see this morning is not that just we don't just see the means of salvation for all believers here, but we see we see the model of service for all believers in verses 12 through 17. The means of salvation and the, the model of service. Jesus commands his disciples to follow his model of service. In fact, he asked the disciples in verse 12, do you know what I've done to you? It's a question that, that they're sitting there probably in bewilderment wondering, what has he done to us? It's as if he's saying, I've taken on the role of the despised servant for your good. And I'll take on the role of the suffering servant for your good and for the good of others. In Verses 13 through 15, he tells them, you call me teacher and Lord. And you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Jesus gave them both an example and a pattern to live by. He did the unthinkable in serving his disciples. Can we do any less for one another? This model of of service that Jesus offers for our gifts to to the disciples becomes the model of service for all believers. It's distinctly different from the world's way. The world thinks happiness is the result of others serving us. But real joy and, and true happiness come when we serve others in the name of Christ. So how are we serving others in the name of Christ? Just currently in our, in our life circumstances, think back over this past week. How have you served others in the name of Christ this is not to be an indicting question, but just one that helps us to evaluate where we're at in, in applying God's word into our lives. How? What are some ways that we can? What are some ways that we can serve others in the name of Christ? The world asks, how many people work for you? But the Lord asks, how many people do you work for? You see, there's a distinct difference in in the the Christian's view of Walking in Christ and serving others. In Mark ten forty three, Jesus told his disciples, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. So here's the real question we need to grapple with this morning. What does it mean then today to wash one another's feet? How do we wash one another's feet? What are some practical ways that we wash one another's feet? I think one of the foundational ones that we need to realize in this text. Is that we're called to serve one another. Even if those ways are costly and sacrificial. The service that we offer comes out of a place of of deep love, a deep love for one another. That is a, a supernatural source within the life of the believer It comes first from there, and that pushes us and presses us in to serving one another. It might mean giving a listening ear to someone. It it might mean giving them support. It might mean praying for them and and going into your prayer closet and, and spending time interceding before the Lord on their behalf. Serving others and washing their feet might mean giving a compliment or Rejoicing in another person's triumph, even at the expense of promoting self. It, it's, it's a life of service. It, it's, it's a way where we seek to lift others up and to minimize. It's, it was the motto of John the Baptist's life. He must increase and I must decrease. What does it mean to wash one another's feet? I think it can also mean employing our gifts Our God-given spiritual gifts in in service to the body of Christ. Ephesians 4, even that we looked at this morning, talks about the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. That's one of the texts that was covered this morning in our, our Sunday morning Bible study time before the service. We employ our gifts in service of the body of Christ. You see, no one... Let me just say, no one is necessarily gifted to take out the garbage, all right? That's not a spiritual gift. No one's gifted to go and scrub toilets, right? It's not a spiritual gift. But what would, what would cause us to do that? What would cause us to do that is the love of Christ within us wanting to serve others. Love of Christ within us wanting to, wanting to, to exalt someone else above ourselves. Not thinking that a task or a specific thing is, is below us. We are called to be servants. James one twenty two is a great reminder and challenge for us that we must be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude ourselves. We, we must not only hear God's word, but we must seek to apply it and, and to live it out faithfully. You see, Christ's lowly service points us forward to see his death as the means of belonging and remaining his disciples, his death is the means of our belonging to the body of Christ. And the cross is the model, his service is the model for us remaining his disciples, John 13:35 Jesus says later in this chapter by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another his lowliest service known to man was the cross Christ took our punishment and condemnation through his death sentence on the cross to give us life. And so the cross then becomes central in the life of God's people, in the membership of God's people. For by it, we have assurance of our salvation. Uh, by it, we come day by day for, and, and receive forgiveness. And it fuels our life as witnesses and servants and messengers for Christ's glory. So, what effect does Jesus' washing the disciples' feet have on believers today? Well, I think it affects every area of our life. First, it foreshadows the cross. Think about, just think about through the New Testament, through Scripture, just how, how God has commanded the believer to walk in faithfulness how God has called us to die to ourselves. Even if we looked into Ephesians 5 and saw the picture of, of the husband and the wife's interaction, the husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The wife is to submit to her husband as unto the Lord, right? The way that she submits to her husband is, is as if she's submitting to the Lord. And this is a call to, to love submitting to the one who has died to, to himself for her good. And we get this picture for the church, 2 Corinthians 5, we're called to be ambassadors for Christ, to serve others, the gospel message. Acts 6, deacons serving tables. Ephesians 6, children obeying parents in the Lord, for this is right. Titus 2, carrying out the, the mission of Christ for the church. Older women teaching younger women. Older men teaching younger men. You see, Jesus' death affects every every area of our lives And as we lay down our lives, we lay down our lives in service to the king. And if no act of service was too low for the great king, Christ, our savior, how could any act of service be too low for you and I? It can't be. In 1972, NASA launched uh, the exploratory space probe called Pioneer 10. The satellite's primary mission was to reach Jupiter and photograph the planet and its moons and then beam the data back to Earth as it went through Jupiter's magnetic field. But they were concerned that as it went back through Jupiter's magnetic field and and, and, and saw the radiation belts and and took pictures of the atmosphere, they were concerned that the satellite would would break up in the midst of uh, all of the um, the rocks and everything that were floating through uh, through the orbit of Jupiter. And so scientists regarded this as a bold plan for, uh, for the, the time that, that they, at that time, they hadn't sent any other satellite into orbit that had been expected to, to do such great things. In November of 1973, Jupiter's immense gravity hurled the Pioneer 10, at a higher rate of speed toward the edge of the solar system than they expected. It passed up Mars, it passed up uh, Jupiter, didn't break up in the atmosphere, and then continued on. At one billion miles from the sun, the Pioneer 10 passed Saturn. At some two billion miles, it hurled past Uranus. Neptune was nearly three billion miles away, and then Pluto at almost four billion miles In 1997, 25 years after its launch, the Pioneer 10 was more than 6 billion miles from the sun. And despite the immense distance, the Pioneer 10 continued to send back signals to scientists on the earth. Perhaps what was most remarkable, though, were those signals emanated from an 8-watt transmitter, which radiates about as much power as a bedroom nightlight. It takes more than nine hours to reach the earth. The little satellite that could wasn't qualified to do what it did. Engineers had designed this satellite to to maybe last for three years. But it kept going, and it kept going, and it kept going. By simple longevity, its tiny eight-watt transmitter radio accomplished more than anyone thought possible. And so it is when we offer ourselves to serve the Lord. God can work even through someone with eight watt abilities. God can't work, though, through someone who quits. Who's unwilling. Who is complacent. The Pioneer 10 accomplished more than anyone thought it could ever accomplish. And it revolutionized our understanding of, of the solar system. In a similar way, the pow- by the power of the Holy Spirit, God used a band of misfit disciples, 12 men, to build the church and to carry out His mission of redeeming creation. And 2,000 years later, the church is still growing and is tr- being transformed and transforming the lives of others through the power and the hope of the gospel. The church is still about the mission that Christ set it out on to make disciples of all nations for the glory of God, for the good of all people, to redeem his creation. Here's the thing, church. What matters most is not the measure of giftedness with which God has given us. What matters is the faithfulness of service with the gifts that God has given us. Are we employing the gifts that God has given us in serving the body? As we evaluate our own hearts, our own lives, our own minds, can this be said of us that we are employing the gifts that we have been given and entrusted with for the sake of the growth of the body of Christ, for the sake of God's kingdom, to bring Him glory? Are we doing it in a humble way? Are we are we considering others above ourselves? Are we serving others for the glory of Christ? Are we seeking to be the very hands of Christ, washing the feet of others so that they might have their eyes drawn heavenward? Is that the goal? Is that is that our motivation? And Service and loving. I pray that it is. If it's not, I pray that it will be. The means of salvation is the cross. The model for disciples of Christ is service. And the heart of the text this morning is this, that Christ's lowly service compels us to love and to serve others and points us to the cross where our sins are washed away. Where we have hope of eternal life. And we have eternal security because of what he has done. Brothers and sisters, let us not be complacent in our walk with Christ. Let us run the race that's marked out before us. Let us be a congregation that's known in this city for the way that we serve one another and the way that we love Jesus. Let us be a congregation that when people come in, they know this is a place where God dwells. This is a people where God is in our midst. They'll know that you're my disciples by the way that you love one another. I want to commend us. Crosspoint, we're a loving congregation. But I want to challenge us not to become complacent, but to continue to strive to think about ways that we can serve others, one another, and love one another. I want to pray and then invite you to spend some time reflecting upon your own service and love for the body of Christ. Let us pray. Father, as we have looked into your word this morning, it is our great desire that this would be the picture of of what, what happens in our own hearts and lives. Lord, we pray for our walk with you, that as we walk with you, that we learn about humility. And Lord, we pray that you would teach us the joy of humble, lowly service Teach us how to find real joy and happiness, Father. Make us mindful of our need to, like John the Baptist, let you increase so that we will decrease, or let us decrease so that you will increase. And so, Lord, as we consider your word this morning, we praise you. We want to submit and surrender ourselves to you for your glory, to service to your body. So lead us, Father, teach us, God, how we are to serve one another. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand this morning?